This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. And welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the Director of Church Society. I'm here with my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr Chris Moore, uh, who's a vicar in Hereford Diocese um, and an ex-Baptist. So um, that's important. That's important today because we're talking today together about what is Anglicanism? What is Anglicanism? Now, by constitution, The Church of England is a Reformed Protestant Evangelical denomination. So in its original foundation, it was never intended to be merely the religious expression of changing English culture, nor was it designed as a pluralistic melting pot of various contradictory persuasions. As John Stott rightly asserted, according to its own formularies, this church is Reformed and evangelical. And we see that in the canon law of the church, where it says the doctrine of the Church of England is grounded in the Holy Scriptures. Um, that shows us where, where we're at. Um, and in things like the, the homilies of the Church of England, the official sermons, we get good Protestant reformed evangelical stuff. And that is what Anglicanism is in essence. But Chris, um, what, what do people outside the Church of England and outside of Anglicanism think it is. You used to be a Baptist. Um, I did. So so what did people think of Anglicanism when you were a Baptist? Oh, just ex- extraordinarily pompous, I think. Um, <laughs> so there, there are a number of things. We, well, the, I trained in Bristol and we trained jointly with Trinity College, Bristol, yeah. which is a, an evangelical training college there. So we would basically have the lectures together with all the Anglicans and then we would go away on a Wednesday and we would do Baptisty things and sometimes on a Wednesday we'd walk through Trinity and we'd hear Anglicans chanting <laughs> delightfully like calling pigeons um, over in a far corner but I think oh. if I was as a Baptist we looked at Anglicans we thought you're going to have to really forgive me for this this is my youthful innocence <laughs> and my sort of you know getting things wrong but we thought that Anglicanism was compromised because you've got different parties within the Church of England. Mm. We thought it was um, very formal so that you were wearing robes, you had your surplices and your scarf or you might have, I can remember once going to a communion service at Trinity College um, and there were two people wearing albs there and a fellow Baptist student of mine who had not seen this sort of thing leant over and said to me, Chris, why are there druids here? So there's that kind of sense of robes and vestments. There's a kind of formality of liturgy, of hymns and that kind of stuff. And I think as well that we felt that the Church of England was established. Therefore, if you want to really irritate a Baptist, you go and knock on their door saying, I'm your vicar, and the Baptist says, well, actually, I go to the Baptist church. And they say, well, you're still my parishioner. <laughs> no, I'm non-conforming. I'm certainly not. So I think it was a whole, I suppose, to put it, I mean, apart from being better paid, we thought that was the case. But putting it all together, I think what we've thought it to be is sort of like the the religious civil service. 
It's kind of <laughs> English, it's like a, a, a minister of the of you know government minister in surpluses. It's that's the kind of I'm I'm being stereotypical, but that's the kind of thinking I think that we had. It was all about lamenting the loss of Christendom. Oh, I love it. That's brilliant. So we're basically overpaid religious civil servants who are formal and pompous. And let me tell you, that's exactly the reason why I then came back into the Church of England to be ordained, because I'm all oh. of those things. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true, is it? You're just kidding at that point. Just Please a bit of pension. You know, you're, just, you're just kidding. Okay. Um, that, that is quite a tough um, reputation for us to get over isn't it i mean <laughs> no wonder lots of people aren't giving themselves for church of england ministry if that is the impression that they have of what it is um it's i mean the hopelessly compromised thing for a start um it is a tragedy isn't it the church of england isn't supposed to be like i said a no. melting pot for lots of contradictory persuasions we're not supposed to be a sort of mixture of three streams, as it's sometimes said. And you would define that in England, at least, as, you know, the streams of evangelical, Anglo-Catholic and liberal. Those are the three streams of Anglicanism. And we're supposed mm. to keep those three streams together. And it's legitimate to be one of each one of those. Um, you don't have to, um, you don't have to be one. You, it's fine to be any of those um, and they all have an honoured place, apparently, we're told. But that's nonsense, really, isn't it? I mean, the three streams might be defined in different ways in other parts of the world. I think in America they talk about three streams and they might mean a sort of uh, evangelical, Catholic and charismatic or something like that. But you could define it however you want. There's always these different parts of Anglicanism and they're all it's supposed to be part of our genius that we have many different contradictory persuasions within the same broad church. Is that really what Anglicanism's about? I think what was it, when I returned, because I was brought up in the Church of England, so it's not as if I was entirely unaware of, of Anglicanism uh, <laughs> when I came back. How's the old proverb go? As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly, whatever it was. But anyway, I, when I came back, I... My, the bishop at the time, very wise bishop at the time, and he, which is not to say my current bishop isn't very wise in case he's listening, but my very wise bishop at the time said that I didn't need any Anglican training. So I, I have had no formal Anglican training, which might explain a little bit. But he said, what I wouldn't need to be convinced of is that you understand not Anglican theology, but Anglican culture. And so he was drawing the distinction between the two, which I think is legitimate, whether we would like that to be the case. Nonetheless, it is the case that we have our mm -hmm. Anglican theology, we have our formularies, we have our Book of Common Prayer, we have all that stuff, but we also have grown up separately in Anglican culture, and that's the kind of stuff as Baptists we would be lampooning. Because frankly, with the exception perhaps of, of, of infant baptism, that we wouldn't have a lot of bones with what you'd find in the Book of Common Prayer theologically. It's good Calvinistic stuff in many ways. But we did have an issue with the culture of Anglicanism. And I think to distinguish the two is helpful because Anglican theology is essential, but maybe not so much Anglican culture as being essential to who we are. So are you saying it's possible to be Anglican without dressing up, doing processions, being pompous um, and all of that stuff? It is possible That's... to separate those two out. Well, I'd, I'd hope so. Yes, I think so. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm hoping we're doing that generally, but... Um... No, I think, I think it is. And I think 
the, also the cultural form of Anglicanism, I think, is waning as our cultural memory of Anglicanism mm -hmm. wanes. Um, I mean, there's all the difference of the world between the Vicar of Dibley and Rev in the way that those two things are portrayed. And, and I think that kind of culture of Anglicanism within wider understandings is going. So you've got to offer something more than just Anglican culture now. Whereas I think 50, 100 years ago, certainly, you didn't need to because people assumed that they were Anglican unless they happened to be nonconformist. But the kind of idea of, of not being anything, I don't think was there so strongly 100 years ago. So we don't have to chant psalms wearing cassock and surplice to be Anglican. No, in fact, legally, we don't have to wear robes anymore, do we? I think I'm right in saying that uh, we now no longer have to wear cassock and surplice. The canons were clarified on that, weren't they? I think. I don't pay yes. that much attention, Lee, because I do wear cassock and surplice <laughs> in my <laughs> congregations. But I think, you know, you don't have to. It seems to me the essence of Anglicanism, I would want to say, is its theological core. And then we can present that theological core in a way that helps us connect that to the community in which we're based, which means that your ministry in Cambridge should be utterly different to my ministry in rural Herefordshire. It should be very different from ministry in Dagenham, where I was born, because these are very different areas. So culturally, we can express our Anglicanism in different ways, but I would hope that we have a core that's identifiable between all of our ministries because it is theologically mm. similar. But that is not, I think, how we view ourselves often. Which is different to some religions which seem to want to impose a uniform culture and way of doing things everywhere. Um, you know, maybe a Middle Eastern culture imposed on Yorkshire or something like that. Whereas Christianity has always been translatable, much more translatable. So we can keep the doctrine of the gospel and the truth of the gospel, but it doesn't have to look exactly the same in... Um, Bradford as it looks in Cambridge, as it looks in uh, Sydney or the middle of Africa. No. I mean, the very fact we translate our Bibles. I mean, whereas, whereas um, in, in Islam, you know, you need to learn the, the Quran in Arabic, but we are content to translate our Bibles into different languages and learn it in English or French or Norwegian or whatever you happen to be. I mean, in a sense, even having Bible translation is an expression of the fact that we're trying to make our understanding culturally accessible and culturally relevant rather than trying to impose uh, a different culture whoever you went on. Mm. Which means you can go to places where you might actually be uncomfortable culturally um, and, and you can still bring the gospel to those places and you can adopt certain parts of the culture I suppose in order to be heard but mm. you might also be wanting to over time reform the culture of a place yeah so that it's more in line with the gospel. And that might look different in different places. It might mean adopting a robed service and a robed choir in some places. Um, and some people are even happy to wear the sorts of robes that Protestants traditionally would object <laughs> to. Um, I'm not particularly happy with that, but other people are willing to go to places where they might have to wear things, dress up with things that they're not necessarily comfortable with themselves because that's the tradition in that place. But they might have a long-term plan to reform things um, so that that's no longer necessary. I can think of a number of friends who've gone to um, to parishes where they've had to you know, dress up in robes every week and have hmm. uh, robed choirs and so on. But over time, as they've taught the word and people have grasped that more clearly, some aspects of that form formality of culture um, have changed 
to be more in line with the surrounding culture so that they can be more missionally active and effective. I think I think that's entirely right. And I think part of I mean, we talk a lot now uh, within the evangelical wing of the Church of England of revitalization ministries and, and the fact that many more evangelical clergy are finding themselves in parishes which, ordinarily speaking, they may not have assumed they'd ever go to for whatever reason. Mm. And I think there is that sense that we have to... I mean, Paul talks about being... I mean, Paul, Paul you know, talking about being all things to all people. And, and I think we need to take that seriously, as long as we remember that he then goes on to say, so that I may win some. So there is that sense of, I mean, I'm, I'm still a great believer on the fact that preaching is the means of grace that God blesses. And through the preaching, you can change culture, but it takes a while. Because if, but if you were to go to a church and you inherited and say you're allergic to road choirs, and at the first PCC meeting, you said, I on my authority as your incumbent, I'm going to disband the choir those people won't listen to you anymore. You've lost them. Um, so you have to kind of gently woo and, and move people along. And it does mean you do things you wouldn't wish to do to begin with. But I think as long as we don't ever confuse the road choir or whatever it is with actually being Anglican, it's not. It's an expression of a particular form of Anglicanism. But we can be solidly Anglican um, in, in all sorts of different ways as well. Hmm. Anglicanism is, is a liturgical thing, though, isn't it? So yeah, there is a sort of uh, an essence to it that's liturgical, which, well, yes, because services should teach things, which our liturgies surely do. They should be orderly. That's a, a biblical imperative, that God is not a God of disorder, but of order, not a God of chaos. And so our services and meetings should be orderly. Also, I think there's something in the Anglican liturgy that it shows that uh, a church meeting is not a performance, but it's meant to involve the congregation. Can you say something about how that works, how Anglicanism involves people in a way that some nonconformist ministry perhaps doesn't, and it becomes a, more of a performance thing where you watch the pastor do the long prayer and the long sermon and, you know, nobody... And you're grateful. Yes. And you don't need to say anything as part of it. You don't have to join in with any prayers or responses or whatever. Sure. I, I have five sons and we turned yeah. up uh, for, for all sorts of long, complicated reasons. Um, well, long, not necessarily complicated reasons. We ended up living in rural Worcestershire. And there's a little tiny bit of rural Worcestershire, which is in the Diocese of Hereford, for some good reason, I assume. And... So we decided we wanted to worship in the church where we were based so we could witness to the village and the place or the hamlet really we lived in uh, as going to the local church, which meant going to the Church of England because there wasn't a Baptist church for 25 minutes drive at all. And we pitched up there and there's seven of us, which is a pewful and also in many congregations doubles the congregation. And they've not seen children in the church since 1832. So it's a great thing to see a child. <laughs> and so we were quite noticeable. And we, we used to sit initially up in the balcony at one of the churches so the boys we could get them used to. And we asked them after about, I don't know, a month of this, two months of this, um, and realising that they'd only ever been in Baptist churches before, which I'd led. How are you finding it? And the the things which they said, which were interesting, they said one thing was that, well, there's more things for us to do in the service. And we thought, well, what do you mean? 
And of course, they're referring to the responses, that there's bits in the service for them to say. So it's keeping them engaged in the service. Mm. Um, one of my sons was very grateful about service booklets because you know how near to the end you are. So whenever you used to get to the communion prayer, he would gently rub his eyes and lie out on the pew because he knew that that's the bit of the service he can have a snooze. So there's a kind of different... I think there's that kind of engagement with the congregation. And I think liturgy at its best, even if it's... I suppose what am I trying to say? Liturgy at its best will, will shape us, will form us, will help our understanding. And it gives us it gives us language to express the faith that we have. I think that's what I'm trying to say because yes. sometimes we know we believe things but it's useful to have the language to express that and i think given the fact that anglicanism very much is connected with the development of the book of common prayer i mean it has its roots in it in many ways we are inherently a liturgical denomination coming out of the reformation in a way that say the scottish presbyterians you know who you dare say a mass in may lug and they throw the prayer books up at st giles cathedral you know they didn't in that way so i think i think being part of it is to be anglican probably is to be liturgical even if you're not using uh set liturgies in this you know in terms of lots of the written prayers and stuff you want to have a pattern and a shape and a logic and you want to take, it's a bit like a spiritual dishwasher. You want to start people coming sinfully and through a process of, you know, of confession, of hearing of God's forgiveness, of uh, praising God, of hearing his word and coming out, you're cleaner at the end of it. So you, you <laughs> want to have gone through the rinse cycle at least once, it seems to me, uh, in a service. That's part of what it's there for, I would suggest. Now more than ever, Christians in the Church of England need to be contending for the true faith against false teaching in the Church. That's why we've republished our book Fight Valiantly in a new, revised and expanded edition to enable all Christians to understand how they can play their part in contending for gospel faith. In this book, Lee Gatiss examines the biblical material on this neglected subject, and also helps us to consider some of the applications in the Church of England today, especially in the light of the ongoing living and love and faith process. There are many stories of people contending for the faith in different ways, including within the living and love and faith process. There's also a Bible study guide suitable for use by individuals or groups, that would be ideal to work together with your PCC or church leadership team. Fight Valiantly, the new revised and expanded edition is now available from Church Society. I think that's good. And I think that that whole involving the congregation thing is very important because in medieval times, it would often be you go to church to watch the priest sacrifice Jesus on the altar. Um, and that was it. That was the high point is watching the priest raise the sacrament, elevate the sacrament. Um, and then, you know, he eats and drinks and that's it. You're, you're watching something. And I think there's a lot about many um, non-Anglican churches today, even evangelical churches, that is very performance-based as well. It's like going mm. to a theatre performance that you watch up front. You go, you have comfy seats, 
Um, maybe you take a coffee in with you, maybe some popcorn or some sweets, and you watch a performance being given for you. Oh, we used to, my wife used to be on the staff at um, a large London church as a, a sort of lay assistant, the first rung of the ladder, as it were, or the bottom <laughs> rung of the ladder. And it was her job to clean up after the services and so on. And we would often find, you know, sweet wrappers and coffee cups. Uh, from I think so because people were thinking of it in the spots. same way, yeah. yeah, the same way that they thought of going to the, the cinema. And we're supposed to be something different. And so Anglicanism, with its liturgicalness, um, deliberately has uh, call and response as part of the way that we do things because we want to involve the congregation. They are a part of it. And there is, weirdly, a sort of pseudo-clericalism in some... Baptist, Presbyterian, and non-conformist um, traditions, just like there was in medieval Catholicism, that we're trying to not do. Mm. There's fair? an interesting thing with um, there's a letter sent by Stephen Gardner, who was Bishop of Winchester back at, back in the day, mm. to Cranmer, mm. and in it he was complaining that Cranmer was going to put the liturgy into English, and the reason for the complaint was that it would interrupt the laity in their prayers. So clearly, what uh, the bishop which at that stage was thinking is that the job that goes on is that the, the priest is supposed to be up the front. This is using the language, his language. The priest is up at the front of the altar doing his stuff in Latin and the congregation are down in the pews saying their rosaries together and they're, they're sharing a space to do that, but the two are entirely disconnected. And he was complaining, <laughs> if you put this thing into English, you're going to distract the people. What are you playing at? But clearly... Because <laughs> they'll be able did. to understand it and they'll have to well, listen indeed. in. Come on now. So... <laughs> but clearly part, so we can say that part of that Anglicanism is that we are engaging. I'm all right in thinking there's something Cramer said about communion having to be intelligently received, which is why we have preaching alongside the communion. Have I made that yeah. up? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I think there is Just that, as the that scriptures kind of are meant, and the whole service is meant to be in a language that's understood by the people. Um, mm. It's meant to engage them in what's going on. It's deliberately engaging them. Uh, there were complaints, I remember, in the uh, 17th century that the, the bishop said, oh, you uh, sort of nonconformist Puritans were had had such long prayers that their prayers were longer than their sermons. And mm. so their services were basically the, the minister, the pastor up front um, doing a very long prayer and a very long sermon and the people never got to do anything. And the bishop said, that's wrong, isn't it? And... Well, I think actually they were right against the Puritans um, in in that regard. Mm. What about what about establishment, Chris? Uh, Anglicanism means that you have to have an established church, doesn't it? Has to be bound up so tightly with the state. I mean, that is an interesting question because obviously, in its formation, there is a close link with the state. The formation of the Church of England there is a close link with the state. And clearly also with the role that the monarch plays as the supreme governor, there's a close link with the state via the monarchy in that way. But yet it's also true to say that there are many parts of the Anglican world, I mean, are my beloved mm -hmm. neighbours, the church in Wales being one, um, who are not established in that way and, um, and in other parts of the Anglican communion. So I think we can say that it's, not of the essence of Anglicanism, because we've got plenty of examples of Anglican churches who are not established. Yes. But it's a particular inheritance of the Church of England 
that we've come up with that um, we haven't mentioned bishops yet as part of what it means to be angry. <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. But there is that sense of um, that tied in. So I find myself as a, as a you know, ministering in, in, in lovely, beautiful, wonderful rural areas that I find myself... Um, you know, British Legion chaplain involved in remembrance services. I shall be in my church in a couple of days' time uh, with leading a service at which will be a lot of people with sticks decorated with flowers because it's the opening service of the Heart of Oak Club Walk. And oh, there will no doubt okay. be brass bands and all sorts of other things going. So you do find yourself doing these kind of much more civic things, which I guess is a part of the... Uh, being established, I suppose, as a church. So you end up doing civic things yes. in your community as well. Which, yes. Which is something. <laughs> it's, yes. It's, it gives you opportunities. It also makes you scratch your head wondering quite what you're doing at times. People often get this whole thing, this whole area, really quite confused. So I've had people say to me, well, you, you're part of a state church. And I said, well, I'm not really, no. I'm part of an established church. Hitler had a state church. Um, mm. You know, H Hitler had a state church, which was... Um, stripped of its Christianity and had to reflect Nazi theology, Nazi ideology. That's not what the Church of England is. It's not there to reflect changing English morality or the morality um, and ideology of the prevailing political class. That's not what the church is there for. It's not, a, it's not a state church in that way. It's established, which means it has a particular position of responsibility to preach the gospel to the state and to celebrate the gospel and be part of the, um, the life, marriage, death of the state, within the state. You know, we're there um, to, to accompany the state through its, um, its life cycles, as we are to, to help individuals through their life cycles. But that's a responsibility that means we have to preach the gospel to that. We're not to, we don't give the state the right to define our doctrine. That's not what we're meant to do as a, an established mm. church. And if the state tries to do that, then we might have trouble. We might have problems because Christ is our king and our head. And yes, the most senior lay person in the church is Her Majesty the Queen, for whom we praise God, especially for her Christian faith. Um, mm. uh, but that doesn't mean that she gets to tell us what to believe. Uh, we don't have a pope. We have Christ as our head and our doctrine definer. Um, yeah. But it is, I can remember once a, a, a Greek Orthodox bishop saying to me when I was introduced as an Anglican, oh, yes, the Church of England, the, 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 the religious civil service or something, a comment. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there well, is that kind yeah. of close identification, which well, is I think tricky. what people forget is that in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, in, in those sorts of times, that everybody went to church, um, mm. <laughs> that, that it was much, we were part of a Christendom, that had built up over centuries in Western Europe. And when everybody's going to church, that means that Parliament is a representative of the people. And the mm. reason that during the Reformation, Parliament wanted more of a say in the church is because it was all then being left to the bishops to do everything. And the, the Roman hierarchy in Rome and the Pope. And Parliament was saying, no, we the people want to have a say in our church. And so Parliament's role was the, the role of the laity in the church. That's what that was about. Now, of course, things are different. 
Parliament is not really a representative of the laity of the church because it's mostly atheists, probably. I don't have any statistics on that, but I think it's mostly atheistical. Um, And so that's why we have the General Synod now. That's how we include diverse and the laity voices within the governance of the church. And that may have some stresses and strains involved in it. Um, but that's what that's what the General Synod is supposed to do because Parliament is no longer the voice of the laity mm. of the church, which it was in the past uh, and was meant to be. And so, you know, establishment has changed in its um, texture and in its structure because of that. And I think it will go on evolving. Um, mm. So the way that bishops are chosen has changed. The Prime Minister no longer has such a, a decisive say in that as as they used to, because that has changed. Um, Thanks to a Presbyterian. Over time. <laughs> so, I mean, it's interesting then, because that, then that brings up the subject of bishops, because that clearly was another thing. Bishops? That, uh, yes. Do you know my predecessor, but three or four here, who ended up being the communications officer for the Bishop of Hereford, um, he was well known in the parish here, that whenever he dropped something or stubbed his toe or something, his, his way of cursing was to say, oh, bishops so there we are but he but again so putting my sort of i was going to say a baptist hat i don't think baptists wear hats uh, back on you would look at baptists would look at bishops and say that they're bad for two reasons one because you've got an authority outside of the local church which is influencing Mm -hmm. you not necessarily for good two Mm -hmm. it's a means Mm -hmm. of ambition so the Baptists will say, well, mm. our best ministers stay in the churches. We don't seek to try and get non-church jobs. No, the ministry is mm-hmm. the thing, and that's what we must be doing. And it was also seen as being bad because it, it was the way in which the church was colluding with the state because of the House of Lords and the bishops sitting by virtue there. So Baptists would, would look at bishops in, through those particular lens. So as a good, loyal uh, son of Cranmer, what would you say back to that? <laughs> Well, um, firstly, I would say that the Bible certainly um, shows us that bishops are a perfectly biblical thing. Um, (laughs) So when... when, Would they say that in the same way then of... You see, I... This is now I'm going to mount my slight hobby horse. So we, we have regional bishops now, 42 of them, well, 42 diocesans or whatever we got across the country having an area... The Baptists, you see, would say, yes, we see that there are bishops in the Bible. Yes, we see episcopos clearly there. But we see them as being in charge over the local church or maybe a town at most. We wouldn't see them as in charge of a couple of counties. Well, they're, they're wrong because uh, they know neither the power of God nor the scriptures, as Jesus said to the Sadducees. <laughs> um, I'm being flippant. But um, and I don't I think that's correct. Obviously, there is the... Um, observation from the scriptures that episkopos and presbyteros are often used uh, sort of interchangeably. That's not the point um, that we're making. The point is that there is a form of episcopacy in the scriptures, a trans-congregational ministry that is recognised even in the Bible, but certainly in the early church, but definitely in the Bible too, because we see, for example, in the church in Jerusalem at the start of uh, the gospel, Um, growing and going out into the world. Um, There were a group of presbyters and apostles, and yet it was very clear that James was the leader, the the figurehead, as it were, the the chair of that group. You see that in the way that he is clearly a decisive voice and a chairing voice in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. 
but also in the way that he is singled out by the secular authorities as clearly being the one that they want to kill uh, in, the, in that early generation. And then we see other people like Timothy and Titus who are not just presbyters over a single uh, congregation gathering on a Sunday, but Paul speaks to them as if they have responsibility to set right um, appointments of elders in other places other than the one that they're um, ministering themselves. They have responsibility to silence people who are teaching falsely in those places that are not their own personal congregation uh, or, or uh, local congregation. They have responsibility to look after the pay, conditions and discipline of ministers. And Paul gives them that responsibility in public letters that are meant to be read by those churches. So um, that, even though it may not be called episcopacy, is clearly episcopacy um, de facto. And that mm. is what is taken on in the next century. The, the apostles themselves are a trans-congregational ministry. And we get that continuing through the scriptures, of course, but it's embodied in an individual. Because I would say it's rather flippantly to my um, uh, history students, church history students at Union, when I'm teaching 17th century e ecclesiology, I say there are three forms of church government that are argued over in the 17th uh, century mostly. There's uh, government um, by bishops, episcopacy, which is personal. It's, it's uh, centered in a person, an individual, uh, and relationships that way. Then there's government by committee, which is Presbyterianism, where the presbyters all get together in a committee mm. and run things. So you've got the personal, you've got the committee, and then there's government by democratical anarchy um, or democratical confusion, as John Owen called it, um, which is congregationalism. Now, John Owen was a congregationalist, wasn't he? He actually later became so a congregationalist <laughs> himself, but that's what he called it. That's a democratical confusion. Um, and so you've got, You've got those three forms of where the power lies. And there's some legitimate debate that. But episcopacy is clearly um, has precedence within the Bible as a thing, even if the name is not given to it exactly the same. Because I know Presbyteros and Episcopos um, overlap, and everybody knows that. That's been seen from the earliest days. But actually, episcopacy is not a distinctively Anglican thing. Can I just say that? <laughs> I don't may. think episcopacy is a distinctively Anglican thing, because it is, in fact, the form of church government that has been um, universally accepted in every part of the world where the church has gone um, over all of church history. So that the majority of Christians in the world today and throughout the whole of church history have been in an Episcopal system. Now, I know that today there are large denominations of Congregationalists, the Southern Baptists, for example, and there are large uh, Reformed Presbyterian churches as well that don't have episcopacy in name. <laughs> um, but the majority of Christians in the world and through history have been in an episcopal church. So it's not distinctively Anglican thing. Um, and when I slightly say in name, uh, I mean that we all know that there are Presbyterian celebrities who act trans-congregationally, um, in fact, if not de jure. And we all know that Baptists and Presbyterians and other um, forms of um, non-conformists, as it were, have ambition to be more than just a small local church pastor. That that's, that's perfectly possible to see that in non-Episcopal systems. Evil ambition to be Diotrephes who must be first 
as uh, the Apostle John puts it, that is wrong in whatever denomination we see it. And it, it isn't solely seen in Anglicanism by any means. And we all know that. So that would be my answer. With my, I was going to say with my Anglican hat on, but actually Anglicans don't really believe in mitres, those silly hats that bishops wear. We did away with those in the Reformation um, and we shouldn't ever have brought them back. Perfectly good Canterbury cap would do. <laughs> <laughs> or a flat cap if you're in Yorkshire, because that would be culturally appropriate um, or whatever. Good. So there we go. We've sorted out Anglicanism. We've, we've perfectly defined it the way that, uh, the way that it's supposed to be. Um, there is a doctrinal um, core to it. There's a liturgical style to it. And it doesn't have to be pompous, formal, overpaid religious civil servants in funny clothes. Um, it doesn't have to be established um, and so on. There we are. We've done Anglicanism, Chris. But can we at least keep the overpaid bit? <laughs> I think the worker is worth his wages, but um, and um, those uh, who excel at preaching and teaching ought to be paid double, according to 1 Timothy 5.17. Um, though who decides that would be interesting. Um, we ought to have appropriate pay. Um, there we are. I'll say well, that. That, that seems fair to me. That seems fair to me. Whatever uh, that is in your context. So thanks for joining us for this discussion of what is Anglicanism. Um, next time, we should probably have a discussion of what did people say when we had that podcast about Anglicanism? What was the response? How many, uh, how many um, cross letters did we get um, lamenting what we'd said? Perhaps we could interact with that another time. Thanks for joining us. Do let us know what you think. Um, on Facebook or Twitter or one of those other formats if you would like to. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.